This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 102nd episode of the program. Today is July 7th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of these individuals that decided to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week, we have Andrea Witt, Anita Garrett, Bianca Elev, Bonnie Corman, Carmen LaFrance, Ellen Shim, Exes, Hannah Engel, Hector Cardigan, Jason Morris, June Song, Karen Sheets, Kids Cuts, Marianne Kutaya, Mary Jo Murphy, Mitchell Helt, Rachel Tobias, Rocky Treadway, Scott Rizzo, Skip Dottie, and Tom Anderson. So all of these individuals decided to sign up to support us this week. If you'd like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you can visit patreon.com forward slash the humanist report or simply go to humanistreport.com. But as long as you stay tuned every single week and keep watching, that's all I could ever hope or ask for. So on today's episode, I'll be talking about how CNN decided to bully a shit poster on Reddit. And I'll discuss what Bernie Sanders had to say about the FBI's investigation into his wife. Now, additionally, potential 2020 presidential contender Kirsten Gillibrand came out in favor of single-payer. So we'll talk about that. And we also learned about the Democratic Party's messaging for 2018. I'll also talk about how a Democratic Party strategist is giving Democrats the worst possible advice and when it comes to the Republican Party New Jersey governor Chris Christie was mocked and turned into a meme and additionally education secretary Betsy DeVos is being sued I'll tell you why now also in this episode the FCC's fake comment problem is much worse than we initially thought and finally when it comes to electoral reform I'll tell you about a new house bill that will revolutionize politics in America so all of these topics and more will be discussed in today's episode let's go ahead and jump right in hopefully you guys enjoy the show and before we jump in if you hear the buzzing that is the air conditioner in the background because it's approximately 2,000 degrees in uh, Portland Oregon today beautiful summer day but you know in this little room when I got the computer going on and whatnot and the lights above me uh, I'm <laughs> I'm slowly being cooked, so to prevent that, just a little bit, I do have the AC on, so hopefully it's not too bothersome when it comes to the audio, but otherwise, enjoy the show. Last week, I gave you guys the rundown of the FBI's investigation into Jane Sanders after she was accused of committing bank fraud while she was the president of Burlington College in Vermont. Now, this has been an ongoing investigation for more than a year, but the story gained national traction once the main accuser was able to implicate Bernie Sanders to this case. So, Brady Taunting, who was a Republican operative in Vermont, is alleging that Bernie Sanders is corrupt because he used his position as a U.S. senator to put pressure on this bank to approve the loan that Jane Sanders had applied for on behalf of the college. Now, I can't get into all of the details because I did cover this comprehensively already, but to give you a quick recap, attorney Brady Townsing, who is the vice chairman of the Vermont Republican Party, who also served as the chair of Trump's campaign in Vermont, 
has been actively looking for ways to attack Bernie Sanders now for quite some time. So he actually accused Bernie Sanders of violating campaign finance laws before, but the judge in that case shot him down because the judge himself had also been the target of Tonsing's false allegations on not one, not two, but six different occasions. So people in Vermont don't really take Tonsing seriously because he's just the smear merchant for the Republican Party. And if he was actually concerned about corruption, then you'd think that he wouldn't have been such a vocal advocate for Donald Trump to be the president. So obviously, Brady Tonsing doesn't care about corruption. And in fact, this FBI investigation is one of the most obvious examples of a political witch hunt that I think I've ever seen. So... In fact, I, I would actually argue that this is a bigger political witch hunt than Benghazi. And guess who was on board with Benghazi? Also, Brady Townsend. So he just looks for ways to smear liberals, both progressive and Democrats. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, this is something that is really important. So I, I think that you do need to be armed with the details so that way you know how to respond to not just Republicans, but corporate Democrats who are using this against Bernie Sanders like Joanne Reed. So I would advise you to watch the full video that I did last week where I broke it down and I got into all the specifics. But for now, I wanted to talk about a different component of the story, and that is Bernie Sanders. So up until recently, he's basically remained silent about this particular investigation, but he spoke out against it on CNN when Jake Tapper had asked him what he thought about it. And I thought what he said was really important, especially in light of new details that we have about the case. I want to ask you uh, about the FBI looking into Burlington College and a land deal there and financing around it from the time when your wife, Jane Sanders, was president of the college. You and your wife recently retained lawyers. Um, I guess the fundamental question for you is, did you or anyone on your staff reach out to the bank to approve any loans related to this transaction? The answer is, is, of course, absolutely not. And in fact, let's be clear, uh, five years, five years uh, after uh, my wife left Burlington College, and she left it in better shape than it had ever been in, five years after, guess what happened? Right in the middle of my presidential campaign, I know this will shock the viewers, uh, the uh, vice chairman of the Vermont Republican Party, who happened to be Donald Trump's campaign manager raised this issue and initiated uh, this investigation. Uh, I should also mention to you that just the other day, uh, the person who allegedly had made this statement that I had been involved in this land deal refuted that. He said, I never said that. That was in a paper in Vermont. So, you know, I, I think what you're looking at is something the Republican National Committee is very excited about. My wife is perhaps the most honest person I know. She did a great job at Burlington College. Sadly, we are in a moment where parties not only attack public officials, they have to go after wives and children. Uh, you know, this is pathetic. And that's the way politics is in America today. So Bernie Sanders basically told you everything you needed to know about this investigation, but he added a new detail on top of it that makes this case exponentially more ridiculous. So let me remind you that the reason why Bernie Sanders is tied to this case is because Brady Townsing is alleging that Bernie Sanders used his position to influence the bank to approve this loan for Jane Sanders. Now, up until this point, we had no idea where this claim was coming from because he's claiming that Bernie Sanders himself or one of Bernie Sanders staffers had put pressure on one of the bank's officials to approve this loan, but we don't know where this information is coming from. But now we actually do know where it's coming from. 
It's based entirely on not just hearsay, but multiple levels of hearsay. So we're talking about one person told someone, that person told another person, and so on and so forth. And it's just so ridiculous that I don't even know how to characterize this as anything other than insanity. So we now know that what Taunting is referring to as the pressure that Bernie Sanders allegedly put on the bank was a conversation that one of Bernie Sanders' staffers had with one of the bank's officials. And we don't even necessarily know that Bernie Sanders had knowledge of this conversation in the first place, but now we know that this claim altogether is bogus, namely because it's based entirely on hearsay. So the Associated Press reports a Republican lawmaker who reported independent U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders and his wife to federal officials was passing on information he heard from a GOP lawmaker who said he didn't have direct knowledge of the allegations. The lawyer, Brady Townsend, sent letters to the U.S. Attorney for Vermont and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp alleging that Senator Sanders pressured a bank to approve a loan to a now-closed college run by Sanders' wife. The source of that information was Republican State Representative Don Turner, the minority leader of the Vermont House. Turner told WCAX-TV that friends at the bank described pressure from Sanders' office, but he says those friends didn't have direct knowledge of the negotiations. Turner says he told Tonsing about it in May of 2016, adding that he would not have brought it to the attention of federal investigators. Tonzing, an attorney who served as Donald Trump's Vermont representative during last year's presidential campaign, said Monday he was standing by the allegation. So I'm going to recap what's happening here because when we put this all in perspective, it makes it that much more ridiculous. So Bernie Sanders is implicated in this investigation because of what Don Turner said. And even though Don Turner said that what he heard through the grapevine wasn't enough to take to federal investigators, Brady Tonsing decided to run with it anyway. And he's sticking by it, even though Turner said that he heard about the alleged pressure Sanders put on the bank through people that heard about it. So there's multiple layers of hearsay. And this allegation is so removed from the original source that it now has no legitimate whatsoever. And it's not like Tonsing is playing dumb. He basically admitted that, yeah, you know, this is based on hearsay, but sometimes hearsay gives federal investigators a launching point so that way they can investigate that hearsay and then acquire direct evidence. That's not really how it works. But the goal isn't actually to get Bernie and Jane Sanders convicted because everybody knows that's not going to happen. The goal is to raise doubts in the minds of voters ahead of the 2020 election where Bernie will most likely be challenging the candidate that Tonesing worked for, Donald Trump. So this is a very obvious example of a political witch hunt but that doesn't stop political opportunists from jumping on the bandwagon because, you know, when Hillary Clinton was being investigated by the FBI when she was running for president, that wasn't an issue to people like Joanne Reed. But now FBI investigations are all of a sudden a problem to her. So when you dive into the details in this specific case, Bernie Sanders is right. It is pathetic and it's obviously a political witch hunt. The New York Times recently published an opinion piece by Mark Penn and Andrew Stein where they basically give the Democratic Party the worst advice ever. So their goal with this article was to tell the Democratic Party what they need to do to be electorally viable again. And the underlying assumption is that the Democratic Party, they've moved too far to the left and they need to move back to the center in order to win again. But obviously, this article is wrong because the premise itself is flawed. The Democratic Party, they never left the center. In fact, the party is 
center and center right, if anything. But th these authors, they're not arguing that the Democratic Party moved too far to the center right and should move back to the center. They're arguing that the Democratic Party has become too liberal and that they need to move back to the center. <laughs> <laughs> So they argue the path back to power for the Democratic Party today, as it was in the 1990s, is unquestionably to move to the center and reject the siren calls of the left, whose policies and ideas have weakened the party. Okay, so we've already got to stop right there, because that first paragraph is so ridiculous I have to address it before we even move forward. So these siren calls that the authors are referring to are obviously calls from progressives to move back to the left. Now. The problem with this argument that apparently our calls for them to move back to the left is weakening the party is patently false because our policies are supported by a majority of the electorate. Raising the minimum wage, single-payer health care, these are all things that the overwhelming majority of the American people actually want. So to say that what we want is weakening the party makes no sense, but let's go ahead and get back to their argument. So they continue saying, after years of leftward drift by the Democrats culminated in Republican control of the House under Speaker Newt Gingrich, President Bill Clinton moved the party back to the center in 1995 by supporting a balanced budget welfare reform, a crime bill that called for providing 100,000 new police officers and a step-by-step -step approach to broadening health care. Mr. Clinton won a resounding re-election victory in 1996, and Democrats were back. But the last few years of the Obama administration and the 2016 primary season once again created a rush to the left. Identity politics, class warfare, and big government all made comebacks. Candidates inspired by Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and a host of well-funded groups have embraced sharply leftist ideas, but the results at the voting booth have been anything but positive. Democrats lost over 1,000 legislative seats across the country and control of both houses of Congress during the Obama years, and in special elections for Congress this year, they failed to take back any seats held by Republicans. Bigger government handouts won't win working class voters back. This is the fallacy of the left, believing that voters just need to be shown how much they are getting in government benefits. In reality, these voters see themselves as being penalized for maintaining the basic values of hard work, religion, and family. It's also not all about guns and abortion. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both won working class voters despite relatively progressive views on those issues. Today, identity politics and disdain for religion are creating a new social divide that the Democrats need to bridge by embracing free speech on college campuses and respect for Catholics and people of other faiths who feel marginalized within the party. Americans are looking for can-do Democrats in the mold of John F. Kennedy and Bill Clinton, leaders who rose above partisanship to unify the country, who defended human rights and equality passionately, and who also encouraged economic growth and raising wages. That is the road back to relevance and the White House for Democrats. Okay, so obviously, if you're a progressive, you know that everything in this article uh, it's it's just <laughs> flat out wrong. The authors have it completely backwards, and what they're advocating for are not centrist policies. They're just advocating for right-wing policies. I mean, case in point, he cites, you know, the so-called centrist victories of Bill Clinton in the 90s 
as, uh, you know, victories for the party because they were centrist and bipartisan. But what Bill Clinton did wasn't centrist or bipartisan at all. He just gave in to Republicans and signed Republican welfare into law that gutted welfare. He did things that were right wing. And the article also implies that the party's desire to embrace Bernie Sanders, yes, because, you know, they're clearly listening to everything Bernie Sanders has to say and they're not just giving him the middle finger, explains why they lost a thousand seats across the country when that makes no sense because Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. If anything, Bernie Sanders is trying to help the Democratic Party and his association with the Democratic Party is making their brand a little bit less toxic. Now, they also imply that Democrats have disdain for religion and that they haven't embraced free speech at college campuses. And to say that the Democratic Party needs to embrace free speech at college campuses doesn't even make sense because it's not like the aggregate party can send a message to students and say, we command you to stop protesting Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos. They can't do that. So the party doesn't have control over that. It's the college campuses uh, that have to implement some types of policies. And furthermore, why would that result in them losing? That makes no sense whatsoever. And you're also implying that the Democratic Party isn't the party of free speech. It's the Republican Party, yes. Because the Republican Party that literally banned the words climate change is the party of free speech. And the party whose president literally sued people over just jokes. They're the party of free speech, right? But those SJWs on college campuses, I mean, they're the ones that caused the party to lose. It's this big SJW boogeyman, woo, that uh, caused the party to lose. It has nothing to do with the fact that they decided to take millions and millions of dollars from large multinational corporations and then turn around and do their bidding, right? It has nothing to do with their corporatism. It has everything to do with Bernie Sanders and SJWs on college campuses, right? I mean, it's just a complete tone-deaf article, and it sounds like a Washington, D.C. elite trying to rich-splain what the party needs to do to win over working-class voters when it's completely ass-backwards. Everything that this strategist or these strategists said the party should do is the exact opposite of what they should be doing. But there's a reason for this. I, I initially read this article, and I thought that the authors were just dim-witted, but they're actually smarter than I initially gave them credit for because as Lee Fang for The Intercept explains, Clinton strategist Mark Penn, who wrote this article, pushes Democrats to move to center and quietly profits from GOP victories. Now, Lee Fang goes on to argue that progressives have long viewed Penn with deep skepticism, noting that he has repeatedly used his close ties to Democratic officials as a vehicle for promoting his corporate clients. But there's another wrinkle to Penn's advice. He now invests in Republican advocacy firms and profits from the electoral defeat of Democrats. Mark Penn's investment firm acquired stake in Targeted Victory, a Republican consulting company that assisted Donald Trump with his presidential campaign and more recently Karen Handel in Georgia's 6th Congressional District. So it's not that Mark Penn is dumb and can't tell his asshole from his elbow, it's that he's greedy and he doesn't want the Democratic Party to reform and become more oriented towards the working class because he wants Republicans to win because he wants to make money. He wants his firm to get rich from all these Republicans winning. That is, uh, that's a special kind of evil right there. Now, the sad thing is that there are people in Washington that will probably read this article and think, wow, this guy, you know, he, he's been an advisor to Bill and Hillary Clinton for years. He actually is part of the reason why Hillary Clinton was defeated by Barack Obama in 2008 because he completely mishandled her campaign. But they're thinking, well, you know, he's been a longtime party ally and strategist, so we might as well listen to what he has to say. When they have someone like Mark Penn 
and Andrew Stein, you know, who are reinforcing their bad behavior, that's not just a lose for Democrats because they will lose if they continue to move to the center and be right wing, but it's also a lose for the people who need a party that's willing to look out for their interests. So, you know, this is just wow. It's it's not stupidity like I thought and a lot of people probably thought when they read this article. This dude wants to make money. It's just greed, pure and simple. In order for them to be successful in 2018, the Democratic Party establishment knows that they'll need to come up with some type of cohesive message, perhaps a slogan of some sort, to illustrate in a concise way what the Democratic Party stands for. So the DCCC came up with a couple of options and they decided to allow voters to decide which ones uh, or which one specifically was our favorite. And the options that they presented to us were so atrocious that when I first saw them, I literally thought that they were fake. I thought that it was literally satire and someone making fun of the Democratic Party, basically demonstrating just how lost they are and what they would come up with because they're so lost. But what they came up with was, it's just unbelievable to me. So we have four options. The first one is resist and persist. I have no idea what that means. So if I'm voting for a party who stands for resist and persist, what does that mean to me? What are the implications? Resist what? Because if you're resisting Donald Trump, we know that you only choose to resist him once in a while, you know, when it's politically expedient for you. But when it comes to the more harmful things that he's doing, your resistance has been tepid at best. And furthermore, when it comes to him ramping up the drone war and ramping up the war in Syria, you haven't resisted him at all. In fact, you've endorsed what Donald Trump has been doing. Hillary Clinton, who some claim is the leader of the resistance against Donald Trump, which is weird to me, but nonetheless, um, she actually said that if she were in his shoes, she would have bombed Syria more and she wouldn't have warned the Russians to get out of there. So, <laughs> they're not resisting Donald Trump at all. So resist and persist means nothing to me. And honestly, it's confusing, if anything. Resist and persist. What does that mean? So yeah, you have to have a message that's concise, but it also has to be coherent. So another option here, even worse, is she persisted, we resisted. Again, I have no idea what that means. So she persisted, we resisted. It's past tense, meaning, well, we resisted. We put in our effort, you know, to resist Donald Trump and we lost, so we're done. And Hillary Clinton persisted in spite of all the media attacks on her, even though she had, you know, media outlets like CNN and MSNBC doing propaganda through, for her all throughout the primaries. You know, she persisted in spite of all these smears that were just unfair, even though she's one of the most corrupt politicians in American history. I Again, this is just... It, it makes no sense to me, and I have to question what they were thinking when they came up with this. Why, why would you even incorporate Hillary Clinton, who is now less popular than Donald Trump? Why would you incorporate someone, presumably, I mean, Hillary Clinton, who else are we talking about? We're not talking about Nancy Pelosi, are we? Because that would be dumb as well, but she persisted, we resisted. Why would you include a failed presidential candidate? Not just a one-time failed presidential candidate, but a two-time failed presidential candidate. You're including her in your slogan to represent the aggregate party? I mean, <laughs> that makes no sense to me. Who who gave you these ideas? You couldn't have come up with these ideas yourself. It had to be the work of a Democratic Party strategist who gets paid millions and millions of dollars, who continuously fucks up, but will never be fired in spite of the bad advice that they continuously feed to the party uh, because they 
demonstrate their value to the party and they say, hey, if you get rid of us, you're going to be completely clueless. And because the party is clueless, you know, at least these strategists are giving them some ideas. And even though they're, they're just completely shit ideas, they're ideas nonetheless, which the party doesn't have. So they stick with these strategists. Unbelievable. Now, this is my favorite. Democrats 2018. I mean, have you seen the other guys? This is the one I saw at first. And again, I'm not joking, not to be redundant. I literally thought that this was satirical. But this is actually an option that they presented us with. What an inspiring option. Have you seen the other guys? Hey, vote for us because the other guys are shitty. I hate to tell you this, but that's not a recipe for you taking back Congress. That's a recipe for voters staying home because you're not offering them anything. That makes that makes me so frustrated. Like, you know, I, I feel torn because on one hand, I feel frustrated that they're so clueless. But on the other hand, it's still humorous to me because they're just so lost at this point that you can't help but laugh at them and how pathetic they are. Have you seen the other guys? Now, another one is a play on Donald Trump's slogan, make Congress blue again. Well, (laughs) that's definitely not going to happen, given what you've shown us will be the message for the party. If anything, you're going to make Congress even more red than it is now. And, And in fact, I think that the Republicans in Congress should start preparing their victory speeches now, because after seeing this... I mean, we're just in for another Democratic Party bloodbath in 2018 when, with everything that Donald Trump is doing, this should be a cakewalk for the Democratic Party. Now, as a result of this, the DCCC was trending on Twitter, and the internet did what the internet does best. They mocked the DCCC relentlessly and just tear them apart. So I want to share with you some of my favorites. So, Democrats, defend Romneycare, war with Russia. (laughs) That's actually pretty apt, believe it or not. Um, Democrats 2018, the strain was more than they could bear. Democrats 2018, platforms are hard, guys. Democrats 2018, what do you have to lose? That's perfect. (laughs) This might be my favorite. Democrats 2018, donate or the Republicans will win by more. Oh, that, this is, these are all, even though they're meant to, you know, be a parody and to mock the DCCC and Democratic Party establishment, these are more accurate than the slogans that the party came up with. Now, we also have (laughs) Slave Queen, (laughs) which obviously is a reference to Hillary Clinton's use of mostly black prison laborers that worked for her for free at the Arkansas governor's mansion. Now, we also have this one, which is just awesome. It says, single pair now cowards. So this one doesn't necessarily relate to the bumper stickers, but it did come up in the feeds and I thought it was great. So I had to share it. So look, clearly these choices are absolutely awful and i would normally you know after i see options this piss poor i would tell them to get back to the drawing board but if they came up with this and this is the best they came up with then clearly there's not going to be anything much better so i it's a lost cause at this point they are so hopeless that any chance that they should have at taking back congress it's just they botched it 
as a result of progressives applying constant pressure on the Democratic Party establishment, it's been the case that more and more Democrats have come around to the idea of single payer. Now, obviously, there's quite a bit of holdouts left, but when you look at the House, more than half of House Democrats have now co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is John Conyers' bill that would bring about a Medicare for All system. And we're now starting to see progress in the Senate as well. So recently, Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley came out in support of single payer, and they came out swinging. And we have some more news on that front. So another senator decided to come out in support of single payer, and this was actually pretty surprising to me. So Senator Kirsten Gillibrand decided to endorse single payer. So as Matthew Raza of Salon explains, Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York has come out in favor of a single payer healthcare system. When her senior advisor Glenn Kaplan was asked by CNN about whether the junior senator from New York supports single payer, he responded yes. A follow-up to Gillibrand's response to a healthcare question at a Facebook Live hosted by Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Healthcare should be a right. It should never be a privilege. We should have Medicare for all in this country, Gillibrand replied. So make no mistake about it, this is fantastic news and Kirsten Gillibrand undoubtedly is doing the right thing by endorsing Medicare for all. However, I'm going to put on my uh, my trusty tinfoil hat here and advise people to be cautiously optimistic because we've been screwed over by the Democratic Party on numerous occasions and Kirsten Gillibrand, in spite of this endorsement for Medicare for All, we know that coming out in favor of single-payer currently is the politically expedient thing to do, especially if you're going to plan to run for president in a couple of years. And Kirsten Gillibrand is probably just more politically astute than most Democrats and she acknowledges that she's not going to get progressives to get on board with her campaign if she doesn't support single-payer. Now, the second reason why I think we should be skeptical is because even if she may be in favor of single payer symbolically, she's still a corporate Democrat who continuously does fundraisers with the big banks and Wall Street. So if she can be bought off by the big banks, then why shouldn't we expect her to be just as easily bought off by the health insurance industry? So I mean, if she comes out in favor of single payer, why shouldn't we expect a gigantic health insurance company or lobbying firm to come along and just buy her off and then she'll change her position? So that's why I'm skeptical. And the, the third and final and most important, I think, reason to be skeptical is because Kirsten Gillibrand is not the first Democrat to come out and symbolically support single payer because there's a ton of Democrats who, although they admit to supporting single payer, at least symbolically, well, they're not in favor of it operationally. So what I mean by that is we have someone like Nancy Pelosi. So she's a Democratic Party leader. She claims to be in support of single payer, yet she won't co-sponsor HR 676. So if you support single payer, why wouldn't you co-sponsor a bill that would push us further in that direction towards single payer. Well, it's because she's raised millions of dollars from the health insurance industry. And it's not just Nancy Pelosi. So Anthony Rendon, the House Speaker in California who single-handedly killed single payer, he also claims to be in favor of single payer health care. And we all know how he really feels about that because he shelved the bill at least for the rest of the year. So there's all these Democrats now who are saying, yes, healthcare should be a right, like Tom Perez, and they're coming out in support of single payer. But for me, I don't want to hear them just talk the talk. I actually want them to walk the walk. Now, thankfully for people like Kirsten Gillibrand and Jeff Merkley and Elizabeth Warren, they're going to have a chance to prove 
that they support single payer. So according to The Hill, Bernie Sanders will be finally introducing his Medicare for All bill after the Senate debates the Affordable Care Act. So once that happens, we'll know where these Senate Democrats actually stand. If Kirsten Gillibrand really does support single payer, then uh, she'll co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill, as will Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley. Because Bernie Sanders previously introduced the Medicare for All bill back in 2013, and it got zero co-sponsors. So that's why I'm skeptical not just of Kirsten Gillibrand, but especially Kirsten Gillibrand, but also of Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley. Because if they really had been on board with single payer, then they would have co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' bill back in 2013. But, you know, um, I'm willing to give them a chance. If they can prove to us that they support it and really do so by co-sponsoring this bill, then we have a reason to be optimistic. But until then, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical. And forgive me for being skeptical. I mean, if you don't like that I'm skeptical and if you think I'm being unfair to the Democratic Party, that's tough because they've shown that they don't necessarily care about what we think so long as their donors approve of what they're doing. So they're going to have to show us and not tell us. Co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill and I'll believe you, and if and if you do do that, Kirsten, then you went up hugely in my book. You will absolutely, um, you'll have repaired your image with me at least a little bit, because there's there's still a lot of problems with you that I have, namely the way you are just glued to your top dollar donors in Washington, D.C. So you're going to have to move away from that, too, if you really want to appeal to progressives. But I mean, hell, if you're in support of single payer, that's a huge step forward for the party and the country. So look, like I said, co-sponsor the bill and show us that you support single payer. And then we have a real story. Donald Trump has been president now for about seven months, and I continue to be perplexed by the mainstream media's coverage of him because when it comes to some of the most insidious things his administration has done, the media will just straight up give him a pass and not even talk about it. But when it comes to the most stupid, benign things he's done, they will obsess over it and pretend to be outraged over it for days. For example, recently, as you all know, Donald Trump tweeted out a video of himself beating up on someone whose face was covered with the CNN logo, and it was was clearly an attempt at humor, and I personally didn't really think much about it. I thought it was actually kind of funny. But the media treated this like the worst thing he's ever done, and they obsessed over it. Case in point. I want to see how funny it's going to be when somebody ends up getting killed, or getting hurt, or getting punched, or getting injured. Look, there's people that might be able to take this as humorous. I certainly don't. And maybe it's because I know the kind of social media feedback and threats that I get and that many other on CNN and many other of our colleagues in the media get on a daily basis. There may be some people who are capable of taking this as humor, but there are a lot of unstable people out there who do not take it as humor, who take it as a cult leader's call to action call to arms and this is not going to end well we are only six months into this presidency and my question is how low can he go every time i ask myself that he goes lower and you know stop enabling this i will say to every republican to everybody around this president secretary price knows that he shouldn't be asking chuck todd why he's talking about this he should be asking the president of the united states why he's tweeting this that congressman that was just on if he can't the congressman that was just on if he cannot if he Congress cannot Zeldin. denounce what he knows to be wrong 
then really he shouldn't go on TV. Let me remind you that they're talking about a meme. I know if I didn't give you the context, you wouldn't get the impression that they're only talking about a meme, but they're talking about a meme. And I think that to conflate this meme to a call for violence on the media, it's just absurd. And if the media really wants to be outraged about what Donald Trump is doing, they should be outraged that his FCC chairman is trying to destroy the internet by rolling back net neutrality regulations. They should be outraged at Donald Trump's decision to deregulate the coal industry to the point where he's literally giving them permission to pollute water. They should also be outraged at the fact that he revived the Keystone XL pipeline and he expedited the construction of the Dakota Access pipeline. So he's doing all of these things that will demonstrably harm the American people that I think are the real offensive things, yet they're choosing to focus on one of the most banal things he's ever tweeted. I mean, it's a meme, again. Now, that's not to say that violent rhetoric doesn't have dangerous consequences. I think that we do have to be mindful of the rhetoric that we use and that we shouldn't incite violence and that what we could uh, and what we say sometimes can be construed as, you know, a call for violence. But this meme didn't do that. It was a meme. He was clearly joking. You know, it, he, he was goofing around. But that didn't stop CNN from doing perhaps one of the most weird and bizarre things that they've ever done. They basically tracked down the individual who created this meme on Reddit and they effectively threatened to dox him. So according to Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, he explains that a controversy erupted late Tuesday night after CNN published an article announcing that it had uncovered the identity of an anonymous Reddit user who created the video of President Donald Trump punching a CNN logo. CNN and other outlets had previously reported that this user, who uses a pseudonym, had also posted anti-Semitic and racist content on Reddit, including an image identifying all of the Jewish employees of CNN designated with a Jewish star next to their photos. Though CNN decided for now not to reveal his name, the network made clear that his discretion was predicated on the user's lengthy public apology, his promise not to repeat the behavior, and his status as a private citizen. But in its article, the network explicitly threatened that it could change its mind about withholding the user's real name if his behavior changes in the future. CNN wrote, CNN is not publishing Han Asshole Solo's name because he is a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology, showed his remorse by saying he has taken down all of his offending posts, and because he has said he is not going to repeat this ugly behavior on social media again. In addition, he said his statement could serve as an example to others not to do the same. CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. So I want to read that last sentence again. CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. Whoa. That is incredibly creepy. You have this multi-billion dollar company basically threatening this random person who makes shit posts on Reddit to basically dox him and expose his name if he makes any memes again in the future. So, Glenn Greedwald states, several of the objections made to CNN's conduct here appear to be false. That includes the claim by the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., that the user threatened by CNN is 15 years old. The CNN reporter, Andrew Kaczynski, said the Reddit user is an adult. The claim that CNN blackmailed the user into apologizing, expressed by a Twitter hashtag, CNN blackmail, seems dubious at best, since there is no evidence the user spoke to CNN before 
posting his apology, though CNN itself says it contacted the user the day before he posted his apology, which presumably means he knew CNN had found out his name when he posted it. But the invalidity of those particular accusations does not exonerate CNN. There is something self-evidently creepy, bullying, and heavy-handed about a large news organization publicly announcing that it will expose someone's identity if he ever again publishes content on the internet that the network deems inappropriate or objectionable. Whether it was CNN's intent or not, the article makes it appear as if CNN will be monitoring this citizen's online writing and will punish him with exposure if he writes something the network dislikes. So, yeah, obviously, this one shit poster on the Donald on Reddit is clearly an objectionable person. I mean, he posts very anti-Semitic memes, he uses homophobic and racist slurs, but for CNN to basically bully this individual and threaten to dox him, that's just a whole new level of disgusting. This is unreasonable. This is completely unreasonable. For one, why did CNN even go after this individual? They got so butthurt by this meme that Donald Trump posted, they decided that they wanted to actually find the individual that posted this meme in the first place. Just give it up. You're a multi-billion dollar news organization. What do you care about one shit poster on Reddit? Why is that such an issue to you? What, what could you have possibly proven by finding this individual and releasing his information? So if he hadn't apologized, would you have doxxed this individual and released his name to the public? I mean, what good would that serve? Understand here why, why this is so ridiculous is because CNN didn't like the original tweet that this shit poster made because they claimed that it incited violence against members of the media, yet they're threatening to dox this individual, basically inciting violence against him because by releasing his name, what are you hoping happens? You don't dox someone unless you want them to be harassed or threatened and intimidated. So the fact that CNN is doing this and going after this one shit poster is absolutely ludicrous to me. Now, obviously, I'm not alone in this opinion, and there were a lot of people that were just completely taken aback by what CNN did because it was so strange, and they released this statement after they received just a monumental amount of backlash. They said, CNN decided not to publish the name of the Reddit user out of concern for his safety. Any assertion that the network blackmailed or coerced him is false. The user, who is an adult male, not a 15-year-old boy, apologized and deleted his account before ever speaking with our reporter. CNN never made any deal of any kind with the user. In fact, CNN included its decision to withhold the user's identity in an effort to be completely transparent that there was no deal. Now, prior to releasing that statement, CNN's Chris Cuomo asked his followers via Twitter whether or not CNN should reveal the name of the Reddit user who made the Trump wrestling video, and he also adds that the user posted a lot of hateful and bigoted material in the past. So, at this point, there are some people coming to CNN's defense saying that they should reveal his identity because, you know, he's just an objectively bad person. He's racist, he said racist things, he said anti Semitic and homophobic things in the past. So they're trying to frame this as them not outing the identity of a meme maker, but instead as outing the identity of a racist. But that contradicts CNN's own reasoning because in the original statement they released, they maintain that part of the reason why they won't dox him is because he apologized. Now, since the internet was outraged, that then led to some CNN employees like Don Lemon, uh, and Wolf Blitzer being doxxed themselves. So their addresses uh, were released to the public and whatnot. And I also don't condone that. Can we just, can we agree to disagree without trying to harm each other? I mean, why is it that we're, we're in this type of mob mentality in 2017 where if somebody says something that we disagree with or if they say something objectionable, 
we don't just, you know, want to state that we disagree with them. We actually want to destroy them and potentially harm them and get people to harass them. It's not acceptable. I don't think anyone should be doxxed. And certainly, CNN, what they did here, I mean, that prompted outrage from the internet. So anyone who doxxed the CNN employees, I also don't condone that as well. I mean, this whole situation is just odd. It's just odd to me. And CNN is completely unreasonable here. They crossed the new line that's never been crossed before. You have a large company going after a shit poster on the internet because he made a meme. Now, is this individual a horrible bigot? Sure, but that's not what this is about. What this is about is private citizens not having to worry about a multi-billion dollar media company coming after them if they choose to make a meme that hurts their feelings. It's called freedom of speech. And CNN, again, I have to question why they chose to pursue this individual. Why didn't they just let it go? I mean, were they so offended by this meme that they had to track him down and, you know, go through his history? It's strange. Get over it. Last week on the show, I talked about how the current FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, is refusing to investigate the influx of phony anti-net neutrality comments that are currently flooding the FCC. So to kind of give you the quick breakdown, anytime the FCC proposes new regulatory changes, they vote on these rules, then they hand it off to the public to comment on it, and then after hearing from the public, they then vote on it. So they're expected to vote on these rules and finalize them later this year after taking into account what the public wants. But that process right now is compromised because there's an influx of phony comments being used with the identities of ordinary citizens, celebrities, fictional characters, and even dead people, and they are falsely inflating the number of comments that support Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda. Now, up until this point, it's been incredibly difficult to estimate just how many comments were in fact fake. Um, I predicted, you know, maybe there were about a couple thousand, maybe 10,000, but it's clear that the issue is much broader and there are many more comments than we ever could have expected. So in a new analysis by TechDirt's Carl Bode, one analyst suggested that up to 40% of the roughly 5 million comments submitted so far are coming from the aforementioned bot. After initially telling me they were looking into things, the FCC has ignored repeated requests for comment on why it's failing to police even the most rudimentary abuse of its own systems. So again, I want to emphasize here, we initially thought that there were several thousand comments being submitted to the FCC that were fake. There's more than two million in actuality. So this is very disturbing to say the least. And when I read the story, it sent shivers down my spine. That's how disheartening and disturbing this is. Because the FCC ultimately will be basing their opinion on public feedback. So you see all these fake comments, they're going to take them into consideration and say, well, you know, we're doing the will of the people. And of course, it's not just me being hyperbolic in saying that. In fact, we now have evidence that Ajit Pai will be using these fake comments exactly as we thought he would. So Bode continues, and now with the ballot box stuffed, it's easier than ever for industry-connected groups to pretend the FCC's plan has broad support among the public. For example, a free market group calling itself Consumer Action for a Strong Economy this week conducted a, quote, study of the comments. Its findings? 
people apparently overwhelmingly don't want a healthy and open internet free from meddling of historically anti-competitive telecom duopolies. The study states, Free Market Group Case says according to its analysis of the FCC's open internet docket, a majority, 65%, favor repealing the Title II-based open internet order as FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has proposed to do. The group said it looked at the nearly 5 million filings as of June 20th and said it would do similar assessments in the future. Of those, it said more than 3 million support repealing the order, while 35%, 1.8 million, oppose repeal. Of course, you can certainly trust the group previously on the record as saying FCC boss Ajit Pai is brilliant and courageous for ignoring the will of the public and gutting consumer protections governing some of the least liked and least competitive companies in American industry. Looking at the group's methodology of the study, it notes that it came to its conclusion by looking specifically for unique phrases but fails to show any of the math for what these phrases are or how they were used. The group doesn't even mention the major scandal involving the bots using instead dead or otherwise fake people to stuff the ballot box. The study states, we identified form letters by sorting large batches of comments to find groupings of comments with similar language, then we scored each form letter as supporting repeal and opposing repeal. Within each form letter, we identified unique phrases, then used these phrases to query all of the comments to find the number of comments containing the same language. This allowed to score 75% of all comments in the docket as either supporting or opposing repeal. Of course, that runs in dramatic contrast to previous studies that found once you eliminated bullshit bots from the equation, that the vast majority of real comments support keeping the rules intact. The group study also flies in the face of survey after survey that indicates that net neutrality has broad bipartisan support among consumers. Of course, Quote, studies like this are precisely why the FCC refuses to even comment on why it's turning a blind eye to comment fraud. Even if nobody takes studies like this seriously, and it's pretty clear some news outlets do, the hope is clearly to generate enough doubt about the validity of the comments and commenting process to justify ignoring the will of the public when the FCC votes to finalize killing the rules later this year. Now, another glaring omission from this study is when you actually look at the methodology, they state that they use key terms that suggest either support for or against the repeal, but they don't give us any examples like an otherwise legitimate study would. And when it comes to the study itself, it's obviously fatally flawed because you can't base a study off of terms exclusively while not taking into account fake comments. Now, the absolute worst aspect about this study is that we know exactly what Ajit Pai is going to do. He's going to cite this study and say, look, 65% of the American people support us rolling back these net neutrality regulations. So we are doing what the American people want. It's not just that, you know, a couple of elect unelected bureaucrats are undermining the will of the people. We heard from the American people and 65% want us to gut net neutrality. And again, this isn't just me speculating. There's actually a study published in the International Journal for Communication that exposes the way that Ajit Pai is using phony arguments to attack net neutrality. And they state that his arguments are riddled with factual errors and unsubstantiated claims. And Professor McChesney describes the study as important research revealing how corrupt and duplicitous the FCC has become in the Trump era. So understand exactly what's happening here. It appears as though half, at least, give or take, of the comments are fake. And the FCC and studies are using those fake comments 
to bolster their pro-corporate agenda. This is a corporate con job. This is a corporate con job where we're hanging on to net neutrality. You know, we're speaking out in overwhelming numbers, submitting our filings and complaining to the FCC, and it's being pried from our hands. It's a con job. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, what he's doing here is one of the most nefarious things I think I've ever seen a bureaucrat do. Now, before, when Tom Wheeler did this, who was Obama's FCC chairman who tried to kill net neutrality, he received a bunch of backlash and he was forced to reverse course. So a lot of us who were proponents of net neutrality thought that we could do the same thing to Ajit Pai. But what he's doing is much more manipulative. He's allowing these fake comments to go on and he's using them to justify his decision to kill net neutrality, and he's claiming to be doing what the American people want. This is sickening. So if these comments are not a good means of us, you know, um, relaying what we want to the FCC, it's time we take to the streets and protest. Protest the FCC if you live near the FCC headquarters Get out a sign and stand in front of the building and protest if you can, because clearly our voices are being drowned out. But you know where they can't deploy these bots to drown out our voices? On the streets. So now it's time that we do what we can and we protest the way that grassroots activists always have protested prior to the internet. And that is just in front of the headquarters of the FCC, in front of the White House. We've got to make some noise because the internet is at stake and what they're doing is... It's one of the most insidious things I think I've ever seen in politics. It's just despicable. I've been waiting all week to talk about this story. So um, <laughs> that's because it's one of the few stories in American politics that actually had a happy ending. So as you all know by now, the government of New Jersey recently shut down due to a budget dispute between the governor, Chris Christie, and the legislature. Now, as a result of the government shutting down. That meant that all public parks were also closed, including beaches. So nobody could go to the beach, but Chris Christie, being the governor and thinking that he is better than all of the peasants in New Jersey, decided that he's going to go to the beach anyway. Now, the funny thing is that a local media outlet decided to hire a plane to fly over a beach, and guess who they found at the beach when it was closed for everyone else? New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Gotcha, bitch! So I'm going to play a short clip from ABC News for you, so that way we have the context, but there's a lot more that I want to add to the story because it is, it is precious. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is taking some serious heat tonight for going to the beach during his state's budget meltdown. His standoff with legislators shut down the government and closed state beaches. But take a look at this. The governor and his family had one stretch of state beach all to themselves, though it was close to everyone else. And when he was confronted about sunning himself during the budget crisis, the governor doubled down. ABC's Gio Benitez is at the Jersey Shore. It's the ultimate summer bummer, a government shutdown closing state beaches up and down the Jersey Shore. All 40 state parks are closed. Closed, but not for Governor Chris Christie, who had Island Beach State Park all to himself this holiday weekend, basking with his family on acres of empty sand. The governor has a residence at Island Beach. Others don't. Suecos. Run for governor, then you can have the residence. Christie had told reporters his family was heading to the beach, but implied he was working hard to reopen government. 
No, it didn't, Claude, um, but go ahead. I didn't get any sun today. Problem is, the local newspaper hired a plane to fly over Island Beach and snapped those photos. When confronted, the governor's spokesman insisted Governor Christie did not get any sun because he had a baseball cap on. But here on the Jersey Shore, they're not buying it. The front page of the Star-Ledger with that photo and that headline, Governor Soaks Up Sun on Beach He Closed. When you see this picture, you're just... I, I just, I, I, I think it's awful. That just shows that he really doesn't care about the people. You voted for Governor Christie twice. Twice, yeah. And now what do you think in seeing this picture? It just, it shows a lot of arrogance. I'm kind of embarrassed that he's our governor, and I'm embarrassed that I voted for him. Even Christie's own lieutenant governor piling on. It's beyond words. It's insensitive uh, to the people who can't use the park. Christie is America's least popular governor. His approval rating, just 15%. Still today, he was defiant. Oh my God, what a scandal. He actually was with his wife and his children. But Governor, you can understand though why a lot of people are upset. They can't go to that beach. They want to be able to do what you were doing and they can't. Well, I'm sorry they're not the governor. But spotted off the Jersey Shore today, this banner. Tell Governor Christie, get the hell off Island Beach State Park. Okay, even though that clip was super short, there's so many things that I want to say about it. So first of all, they said that his approval rating was at 15%, right? My question is... Who are the 15% of people in New Jersey that still approve of Chris Christie? Have you not got the memo that he doesn't give a damn about you? I mean, you see the way that he treats you and the hubris that he has. He closes down the beaches for everyone else, but since he is an elite, he still thinks that he's entitled to go to the beaches while the peasants are not allowed to, to enjoy them. I mean, how could you still approve of Chris Christie? After not just this, but all the shit that he's done. How could you approve of him? So even though, you know, 15%, that's relatively low. He's the least liked governor in the country. But 15% is too high, people. Come on. Come on. <laughs> there should be nobody that approves of uh, Chris Christie after what he did. Now, of course, the result was that he was mocked relentlessly. And of course, before we proceed with this, uh, because you know I'm going to get into the memes. Um, of course, this story does not have anything to do with policy substance, but I wanted to share it because it highlights the way that elites think they're better than the American people. And we see how the peasant class, uh, if you will, gets crushed by these elites and how they think they're better than us. And this story, I mean, this, <laughs> there's no better story, I think, that exemplifies just how little elites think of us peasants. So, of course, you know, the meme potential here, it, it was up to here, and the internet certainly delivered. So I wanted to share those memes with you. These are some of my favorites. Enjoy. Now, of course, I saved the best for last because there was an artist in New Jersey that actually created a sandcastle on the beach to mock Chris Christie. And the work here, honestly, is excellent. So it's very impressive. I think it looks just like him. And it sends a huge message to Chris Christie that you're not better than anyone in New Jersey if public parks are closed because the government shut down because of a disagreement that you had with the legislature. 
you don't get to chalk it up to, well, they can become governor. No, it doesn't work that way. You were caught and you were embarrassed. And I want to get to the excuse really quick before we end the video. Um, so he technically wasn't lying and he didn't get any sun because he was wearing a hat. That sounds kind of dumb, 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 dumb. You are really dumb. For real. So look, I, I don't, after this embarrassment and the numerous embarrassments that Chris Christie has had to suffer through as New Jersey's governor, I don't know how he hasn't just resigned in shame, but nonetheless, he is persevering in spite of everyone hating him across the country in New Jersey. It's time to wrap it up, Chris Christie. Retire. Your political career is over. Once you retire, um, your political career is over. Now, of course, you will become, you know, a lobbyist for Wall Street or a big bank. So, you know, with respect to that, you're going to be okay. You'll have money. But in terms of politics and you being an elected official, it's time to wrap it up because you're not doing yourself any favors here. Billionaire Betsy DeVos has faced a substantial amount of opposition as the education secretary, and this is because, quite frankly, she's made it clear that she doesn't give a damn about American students. She's not advocating for us or fighting on our behalf, as she's supposed to. She is all about the charter schools and for-profit colleges that defraud us and rip us off. So she's now being sued because the American people know exactly whose side she's on. Now to give you some context, during President Obama's term, the Education Department created a number of protections for students that were basically defrauded by these predatory for-profit colleges. But once Trump was elected and Betsy DeVos came in, these billionaires no longer thought that these protections were necessary and they decided to delay them. Now as a result, 18 states are now suing Betsy DeVos and they're alleging that her decision to delay these protections are actually illegal. So according to Politico, 18 states and the District of Columbia filed suit against Education Secretary Betsy DeVos on Thursday over her delay of regulations meant to protect federal student loan borrowers defrauded by their schools. The lawsuit filed in federal district court in D.C. led by Massachusetts and joined by 18 other Democratic attorneys general accuses DeVos of illegally delaying the regulations aimed at predatory colleges, which were finalized by the Obama administration and had been set to take effect on July 1st. The rules known as Borrower Defense to Repayment sought to make it easier for defrauded student loan borrowers to seek debt forgiveness. They also prohibit colleges from requiring students to resolve complaints against their school through arbitration rather than in court. The Trump administration last month delayed implementation of the rules, citing a legal challenge by a California association representing for-profit colleges. DeVos said at the time the rule created a muddled process that's unfair to students and schools and puts taxpayers on the hook for significant costs. The Education Department has said it will begin a process to rewrite the rules later this year. Separately, consumer groups on Thursday filed a second legal challenge to the Trump administration's delay of the regulations. Public Citizen and Harvard Law School's Project on Predatory Student Lending filed a lawsuit on behalf of two former students who claimed they were defrauded by New England Institute of Art, which is owned by the Education Management Corporation. The students say they want to sue that company, but can't because they signed an agreement to resolve any complaints through arbitration, an agreement that would have been banned by the regulations DeVos is delaying. Both lawsuits argue that DeVos' delay of the rules 
violates the Administrative Procedure Act and ask a federal court to order the administration to enforce the rules. A spokeswoman for DeVos dismissed the lawsuit as ideologically driven and said the Obama-era rules were drafted through a heavily politicized process that failed to account for the interests of all stakeholders. Okay, so notice that whenever a politician uses the word stakeholders, they're almost never talking about us, even though we're technically stakeholders. They're often talking about special interests. So it's kind of an Orwellian doublespeak way of saying, well, this uh, set of regulations, it didn't take into account all the for-profit predatory uh, colleges. So we need to have a new set of regulations that hears out their voices. Actually, we don't. You're the education secretary. You're supposed to protect American students, and you're not doing that. You are delaying protections that would help them and ameliorate any of the loss that they suffered when they were defrauded by these predatory colleges. So this, to me, um, is incredibly frustrating because she is basically trying to frame this as a politically driven lawsuit when that's not the case. What Betsy DeVos is doing here in delaying these protections, it draws a line in the sand directly and it shows us who she is in favor of. She's not here to advocate for us. That's not why she became the education secretary. She's there to push for charter schools and the privatization of education and certainly this lawsuit and those regulations that Obama's administration implemented got in the way of her agenda. So, of course, what she's doing is wrong and I really hope that this lawsuit doesn't go her way because these regulations are obviously necessary and they're long overdue. If you're a progressive, you know that money in politics poses one of the biggest obstacles to progressive policies ever being codified into law. In fact, according to a 2014 study by Dr. Gillens and Page of Princeton University, they found that the United States has effectively become an oligarchy since the influx of money drowns out the voices of ordinary Americans. So, if we ever actually want to make progress on really important issues like healthcare and climate change, then we've got to have some way to get money out of politics. And the best way to do that is to publicly finance elections. Now, I've also advocated another type of reform that we need to actually make progress, and that is electoral reform. So campaign finance reform is one way to affect change, but electoral reform is another crucial way to actually make a difference because we currently live in in a two-party system, not because, you know, uh, our constitution mandates that there only be two parties, but we're a functioning two-party system because of Duverger's law. So in majoritarian systems, you almost always get just two parties, and this remains consistent throughout the world with the exception of a couple of countries. But there's currently a House bill that was introduced by Representative Don Beyer that actually reforms our electoral system in a really meaningful way. So Zaid Jelani of The Intercept explains, Virginia Democratic Representative Don Beyer authored and introduced the Fair Representation Act, which would enact a series of reforms designed to make our elections more competitive and open them up to more parties. Democratic representatives Ro Khanna of California and Jamie Raskin of Maryland have co-sponsored the legislation. The bill would do three things. Require all congressional districts to be drawn by independent redistricting commissions, establish multi-member districts, and have all districts use what's known as ranked choice voting. 
the independent redistricting would take power away from partisan legislatures to draw congressional district lines, meaning that one party or another could no longer engage in gerrymandering. Multi-member districts would mean that voters in each district would have the opportunity to elect multiple legislators to represent them instead of just one, which would mean that more people in the district would have the opportunity to elect someone closer to their own ideology rather than being stuck with one lawmaker who may or may not represent their viewpoint. Finally, perhaps the most significant reform in the bill is ranked choice voting. Under this system, voters would be able to rank their preferences among various candidates and parties rather than simply casting one vote for each office. If no candidate receives a majority of first preference votes, then second preferences are accounted for, and so on, until one candidate has a majority. Under RCV, you can vote your conscience without helping a candidate you loathe win instead. Lastly, it would eliminate the need for expensive runoff elections, as under this system, the runoffs would be instantaneous. In an interview with The Intercept, Representative Khanna stressed the benefits the bill would have in changing Congress to make it more representative of Americans. The reform of Congress is one of the biggest priorities to empower citizens, he said. This would help with minority representation and more women because many times communities in a small population are shut out and multi-candidate districts would allow them to have proportional voice. He also said it would help finally open up America's so-called two-party system to more political political choice and competition thanks to ranked choice voting. The major obstacle is getting a Congress full of incumbents from the two parties to support legislation that would cut against their own self-interest. Khanna suggested that only grassroots pressure moves legislators to act. So make no mistake about it, if this bill ever passed, this would be revolutionary and not in the regime change sense, obviously, in the political sense. It would change American politics for the better forever. So this was just introduced on June 26th, and the bill already has two co-sponsors, Representatives Jamie Raskin and Ro Khanna, as the article states. And I'm absolutely thrilled that Jamie Raskin and Ro Khanna decided to co-sponsor this bill because a lot of bills never see the light of day once they're introduced because there's no congressmen or women that are willing to actually be brave enough to co-sponsor it. But they are doing something that's incredibly brave. Now, the bill itself is H.R. 3057, and I think that what we need to do for this bill is exactly what we did for H.R. 676. We need to call our elected officials and let them know to co-sponsor this bill. Now, the article itself frames ranked choice voting as basically the best component of this bill, but I don't want to devalue how great reforming, you know, our district magnitude will be. So currently in America, we live in districts with a magnitude of one, meaning that we always just elect one candidate. So as long as you get the plurality of votes, even if a majority of people vote against you, the winner wins and the losers get nothing, meaning that in lots of districts, a majority of citizens aren't even being represented. Someone gets elected that most people didn't vote for. So if you reform the system and increase our district magnitude even to just two or three, meaning you elect either two or three people per district, that makes us more proportional. That means that more people will be represented and that will change American politics in a profound way. This bill is the real deal. Not only are they opting for ranked choice, they are putting an end to gerrymandering once and for all, and they're instituting multi-member districts, which again, could break up the two-party duopoly, and that is huge. And see, the thing about two-party systems is you always have 
two parties that try to run towards the center. Now, since the Overton window shifted so far to the right in the United States, you see the Democrats and Republicans basically trying to run to the center right, although Republicans have been going off the right wing cliff for a while. But if you have multi-member districts, then political parties They'll be more diverse in their ideologies because they're not going to be forced to appeal to as more, much people as possible. So you don't have centrist Democrats trying to be as centrist as possible because they don't want to offend too many people on the left or the right. So they just try to be as appealing as possible. But in these types of districts, you can actually have people come out and take a stance and say, I am an unapologetic liberal. I'm in support of single payer. And if that offends people on the right, too bad. Don't vote for me. Vote for someone else. So this is exactly what we need. This is the antidote to the sickness that is the two-party duopoly in our country. And I would encourage every single person to call their elected official and tell them to support this bill. Because I, look, will this bill be difficult to pass? Absolutely. Because as the article states, as Ro Khanna states, you're getting people in Congress to be in favor of something that is against their own interests, that literally threatens their career prospects in Congress. But if you put pressure on them, they will listen. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all for tuning in if you've made it this far into the episode. And I want to welcome all of the newest subscribers to the channel. And as usual, I want to send a special thank you to the Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show not to just survive, but to thrive and upgrade and buy the microphones and whatnot. So thank you all so much. I will see you all next week. Take care.